0: This episode of the Fit Cookie Nutrition Podcast is brought to you by The Feed. To get 15% off of your order, go to thefeed.com and use code FITCOOKIE15 at checkout. Hello, everyone, and welcome to this episode of the Fit Cookie Nutrition Podcast, My name is Holly Samuel, and I am your podcast host today. I am also a registered dietitian, certified personal trainer, and have my master's in health education with a focus in eating disorders. I am really excited to kind of continue the multi-stage, non-traditional race series, mini-series, that I have been doing on the show. Um, If you already listen to my previous episode on fueling multi-stage events. We are going to follow that up today with training for multi-stage events. Um, If you missed that episode, the recommendation I would have for you is to make sure you check that one out too, because while the training for these events is super important, the fueling and the recovery is probably what's going to get you to the start line and also the finish line. Today, on this episode, we have guest Elizabeth Scott. You may know her from Running Explained. That is her business Instagram page. She has her own podcast called the Running Explained Podcast and she does exactly what that suggests. She explains all things running Um, from an evidence-based scientific perspective. She does such a good job at this, and I rave about her (laughs) abilities during this episode as well. And I thought she would be the perfect person to come on and talk about training for multi-stage events like the Dopey Challenge, Ragnar Relays, the Goggins Challenge, et cetera, because she's trained a lot of runners to do this. Um, We've actually shared clients in the past where I've fueled them for the Dopey Challenge, and she's trained them for the Dopey Challenge. And we made, I think, a pretty good tag team considering those clients Did super well at the Dopey Challenge. Um, So, I really value her expertise in the training department for these types of races. And she brought really great perspective to this today. So, without further ado, let's welcome Elizabeth back to the Fit Cookie Nutrition Podcast. Elizabeth, welcome back to the Fit Cookie Nutrition Podcast. Thank you, Holly. I'm excited to be here. Yeah, I know last time we talked about, I think if uh, training doesn't go to plan. And today we're going to talk all about how to train for these like multi-stage events, which I'm super excited about because I think there's this whole population of runners who like lives for these challenges. So I am really excited to draw some light on this in this mini series. I already released an episode on fueling multi-stage events. So now we're going to dive into the training aspect.
1: Yeah. And I'll, I'll preface this right up front and say that the training is kind of secondary to the fueling and recovery. <laughs> so if I, if I reference things about like how to properly prepare for a multi-stage or a multi-day event like this, that is basically like, you probably covered this in your you know, previous episode of nutrition, cause it is that important, but yeah, we will be focusing more on how to structure training and how to approach training for non-traditional events.
0: I love it. And can you just remind everyone if they have been living under a rock,
1: <laughs> who you are and what you do? Yes. Hello. My name is Elizabeth Scott. I am the creator of Running Explained, um, in which I was thinking about this the other day, like the whole The whole beauty of running is that you can't really explain it like you can, you can kind of explain the science and we know this and we know that, but there is something so inexplicable about what makes running special. So I'm not the irony of what, how I named my business is not lost on me. Um, Yes. So my goal is to help make people into better, smarter, faster runners by educating them about the sports science principles of training and fueling and racing and mindset. We offer group coaching, one-on-one coaching training plans and a great community that will tell you the importance of slowing down on your easy effort days over and over and over again. So that's us. (laughs) Oh, I
0: love it. And if you guys do live under a rock and you don't follow Elizabeth on all social media platforms or listen to her podcast, you should go check it out. You do You do such a good job explaining like the heck out of everything when it comes to running and it comes from just reliable resources and using evidence-based information and you pull all the greatest experts too, to help you with certain topics on your podcast. So I really appreciate everything you do. Thank you so much so let's first define like what we mean by this like non-traditional or like multi-stage race so like at what point would you um kind of define or consider a race or a challenge to be in this category um and when like at what point does it need to be treated differently than like a half or a full marathon
1: that's a good question. And, you know, I feel with the the rise of these non-traditional events, they're becoming very accessible into the regular running population. I think it used to be that doing a, something like a, a multi-stage relay was kind of a fringe event in the past couple of years. It's definitely become a lot more mainstream with Ragnar relays and like point to point, you know, hood to coast. And there are ones that are happening kind of all around, um, all around the country, all around the world that are not Ragnar branded, but Generally speaking, when, so we have our traditional distance, um, race events, right? So we have five Ks, 10 Ks, 10 milers, half marathons, full marathons, right? We have our events that we go when we run that one specific event and that's it sometimes you may embark on some sort of like, oh, but my favorite local race, they give you an extra medal. If you run the mile and the 5k, or if you run the 5k and the 10k back to back or something, you know, on the same day within an hour of each other, that's not necessarily the kind of event we're talking about here. When we talk about training for these multi-stage, multi-day events that are not necessarily continuous ultras, right? So not Not an ultra marathon, not a backyard ultra, but an event where you are running for a specific period of time. And then you have a couple hour break, maybe, maybe a 24 hour break and you do another, Multi, you know, another leg of the event, whether it's a couple miles or maybe up to a half or a full marathon distance. And then depending on the event you're participating in, you might do two, three, four, maybe even five of those events, you know, of those um specific legs, those distances separated by a couple hours, up to 24 hours, all in a row. So we think about this event really being as like you're running multiple times in a relatively short period of Time maybe a day or a couple days, and the overall distance that you cover ends up being quite a bit, even though the individual legs may not be all that long themselves. Some of them are obviously talking about this like the Dopey Challenge. You got to run a marathon as part of it, Um, but not not everything is quite that intensive.
0: Oh, thank you for that definition. I think that's helpful because. Um, there are a lot of like, you know, local challenges where, yeah, maybe you're completing like a 5k and a 10k in one day. And I would say, yeah, that's multiple stages, but we're kind of talking about like probably more than three, like different times that you're running over the course of a day or a couple days with a couple hour to 24 hour break. Um, where you know you get some recovery, but it's not really enough for you to feel fresh <laughs> going into your next leg. So um, for this breed of runner, <laughs> uh, why would you think it would be important to like maybe set some expectations and goals for these challenges instead of just saying, oh, I'm training for you know a marathon, so I'm running all the miles, let me just wing it. Like what might someone want to consider for this type of thing before we kind of dive into like the different types of multi-stage
1: races? Yeah. So the very first thing is to understand the structure of your specific event. So just like we want to be as specific as possible training for our, our big one distance, one event race, right? Like if you are training for a marathon, the training that you do and the way you structure your training from a scheduling standpoint, from the types of runs you do and how you approach your runs and like when you do, do them during the day and the types of things you're focusing on are going to be focused on the marathon specifically. So. Although your training structure isn't going to change dramatically when you're tra- training for a multi-stage event, you do want to consider things like what times of day will you be running? Are you going to be running twice in a single day or twice in a 12 hour period? You know, in that kind of situation, it's helpful to understand your training should in some part mimic the schedule of the day what your actual multi-stage event will look like now, of course. So for a Ragnar, that might mean once a week, you're running twice in one day. Right. Uh, but for something like the Adobe challenger, a multi event, um, race weekend, you are still only running once per day, but you are absolutely running multiple days in a row.
0: Yeah. on tired, tired legs. (laughs) Yes. Yeah. And like, I think that's important to talk about too. Like if you have never run on a strange trail in the dark in the middle of the night with no sleep, having also have run the previous day, like it might be important to practice that a few times in your training, um, because it's just going to be a lot of the times I think what is so attractive, but also so difficult about these challenges is that they are things that normal training schedules, like don't really, um, include like you're not usually running in the middle of the night just because, you know, for like training for a marathon. But if you're running, you know, like a trail Ragnar relay race in Utah, for example, and your leg is in the middle of the night and you've never done that before, like it's helpful to know what gear you're going to need and all of that stuff as well.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Uh, And whether it's on the road or the trail running in the pitch black two o'clock in the morning with, have you ever worn a headlamp before? Do you know that it's comfortable for you? Do you need other reflective gear? You know, how do you personally, do do you find running in the dark to be discombobulating? You know, how do you combat that, that sort of thing? How do you deal with, you know, running when you're slightly sleep sleep deprived? That all, not to say you should practice sleep deprivation, but you should know what it feels like to not just be tired physically, but to be like, my body wants to be asleep right now. And also something I think it's important to to remember with all of this is that um, you're never going to be as fast on the legs of multi-stage races as you will be if you were just doing the one single leg as a standalone event. I think it's really important to remember is that, you know, although we may say when you go and race these events... You're not going to be racing them in the true sense of going at your best effort over the distance in most cases, because you just physically can't, you can't race your best effort at a half marathon. And then the next day, run a marathon at best effort. You need to dial the intensity of both those down. So you can actually go the distance without, you know, hitting the wall, bonking, or just totally breaking down from fatigue.
0: Oh, I love that. And I think, yeah, let's kind of dive into the the two different categories of like races we're talking about. And then I want to kind of unpack that a little more. So when we're kind of first talking about maybe more of like the relay type race, so maybe like a Ragnar or even the Goggins challenge, or there's like the Yeti challenge. Um, there are a lot of challenges at home over COVID, but, um, for something like this, where you're running, you know, a couple miles and then you're taking a couple hour break and then you're running again, and then you're taking a couple hour break. Um, maybe you're on a team of people. So when you're not running, someone else on your team is running, like, how would you help someone maybe set a realistic like goal or expectation for that type of race where your performance maybe, is not going to be just about you? It might be about the whole team, um, versus like you said, knowing basically how to pace yourself, like during those legs.
1: Yeah. And it's the same advice. I actually, I just had one of my runners do her very first Ragnar Relay. So this is like super fresh in my mind because we just went through this whole process. Um, and so, you know, obviously we want to approach these multi-leg shorter leg races in the same overall mindset of how you might pace a distance if you were running it continuously. So, and by that, I mean, you want to start out conservatively, right? So if you are going out guns blazing, cause you feel amazing on your first leg and you trash your legs on your first leg, that's going to make the rest of the legs you have to run a huge challenge, right? So it's always better to start out conservatively. So maybe you do start out your first leg. At an easy effort jog and kind of settle into the pace and see how it feels. Depending on the experience of the runner and, and how much racing experience and how you know large of an endurance base they have, maybe you're going to kick it up into moderate pace. Depending on how long the leg is, you know but that first leg should always be like i I'm just here to not hurt myself and not burn out and test the waters. And as the legs progress, depending on how many you're doing, if it's you know three or four or five, you know how long the event is, you know making a strategy and thinking if I'm running you know, 20 miles total, I want to make sure that I'm pacing myself to remember that although I'm running shorter individual legs and I'm getting some recovery in between, I'm still running a good distance in a relatively short period of time. So, you know, keeping that in mind as you're not just going out and running, f- racing five miles, you're racing 20 miles that happen to have a couple breaks in between. So pace yourself, start easy. If you want to kick it into moderate, that's fine. It always feels so much better to sprint to the finish than it does to like struggle and burn out. Totally. And I think like, if
0: you do have a team of people, um, it can be helpful to get everyone on that same page because if you are on a team of people and people do go out too fast and they do trash their legs, and then they're unable to complete the rest of their prescribed legs, that is going to be a problem for the rest of the team who then has to complete the person's missed leg. So I love that mentality. And I think sometimes getting runners on the same page is hard, but don't go out too fast still applies to relay type races. Um, So when it comes to like training for something like this, how much time, like And I know the answer is it depends because you're a great coach, but um, how much time would you typically recommend for someone to train for something like a Ragnar relay or a Goggins challenge where they're probably going to be covering
1: like at least 15 miles total for the race? That's a great question. And so the really, the, the thing that I would tweak here is that we don't necessarily need to focus on putting in giant long run distances, although the overall volume of the week does still matter. So what does this look like? So although, uh, and I'll use my, my recent runner as an example, you know, she is a half marathoner. Um, you know, she's recently built up to the half marathon distance. And one of her big concerns was that she was worried about completing the distance of her individual Ragnar legs. And I was thinking, you know, from an endurance-based perspective, if she's capable of running 13 miles continuously, I have no concerns about her being able to complete 5 miles taking a break 6 miles taking a break 3 miles taking a break right so um but we if we were training specifically for the Ragnar we wouldn't necessarily put in long runs of such a great distance for like she would we wouldn't run 12 miles in our long run right so although It is still an endurance event. We don't need to be as long in our long runs, um, as we would for a longer continuous race. And I hope that makes sense as I say it to people. So what does this look like? So your overall endurance base still matters. And that means that you really can't, you really can't shortcut your volume when you're training for an endurance event, but you don't need to be running 30 miles a week to complete a, a total Ragnar or total relay distance of like 12. 15 or even 20 miles, which are punctuated by rests in between, I would still like to have a runner be capable of running longer than their longest scheduled leg, but not necessarily by that much. So, you know, if their longest leg is let's say seven or eight miles, I would like them to be able to comfortably complete at least a mile longer than their longest long run. So let's say nine or possibly even 10 miles, but we don't need to be like doubling the volume, you know, of, of, their, of their legs to get them comfortable here. So, you know, there is such a thing as spending too much time on feet when it comes to this. And of course, always making sure, like I said, that volume base, the rest of your week matters as well. So it's not just about running any one single distance on any given day of the week. It's about how many days are you running a week, running more days than you're not running, you know, getting enough time on feet overall, and then giving yourself time to properly train for it. So, you know, kind of the minimum I would suggest anybody take to train for almost any race distance is 12 weeks, possibly quite a bit longer, depending on where you're starting from and how long the distance is. But you know, I'd recommend a minimum of 12 weeks to train for your Ragnar, um, especially if you are still working up to being able to complete a run that is at or near the length of your longest leg.
0: Let's take a minute to hear a word from our sponsor, which is The Feed. You guys, when I first discovered The Feed um, back at the very beginning of my training for the Boston Marathon this year, 2022, I was so (laughs) excited um, because The Feed is a website that you can go to, and they pretty much carry any sports nutrition brand item that you could think of, and you can order samples you can order full containers and you know in bulk supply and everything in between and it is such an amazing resource that i point all my clients to anyone that i work with because at the end of the day sports nutrition um you know the principles are going to apply to everyone but what actual products work for your body and that you actually like that's really going to depend on the individual so i love that i can partner with a brand that carries so many different sports nutrition products so that you can go find what works for you and you can go try samples so that you're making sure you're investing in something that you actually like. To go save 15% off of your feed order, you can visit the link in the show notes and use code FITCOOKIE15 at checkout. Gotcha. That's helpful. And like what I'm hearing too, is it might not be as important for someone to run, say like a 12 miler, if their longest leg is seven, but it might be important for them to run maybe an eight miler, but also be able to run like more back to back runs, um, that are shorter, like around the longer distance to kind of mimic the, the race itself. Does that kind of add up?
1: Yeah. And you know, as we get closer, you don't need to do this every weekend. You know, traditionally we have our, our long run, our longest run of the week is on the weekend for most people. Cause that's when it's convenient for them to spend that much time on their feet and how this might look as you get closer to race day for something like a Ragnar is you might say, well, you know, usually, um, let's say I've been running for, you know, nine miles for my long run, as you get closer to your race day, you might split that long run into two. Now it's so funny. Cause I talk about how important it is to spend continuous time on feet in your long run with like my half and my full marathon groups, because it is so important to spend that much time continuously running when you're training for like 13 continuous miles or twenty continuous miles, but specifically for a a multi leg event where you are running shorter legs in a, uh, like in one day or over multiple days, it can be helpful to split your long run into two. So you get used to running twice in one day on legs that are not even near fully recovered from the run before. So if you normally run like say like nine miles for your long run, you might run something like six miles in the morning and then three miles or four miles at night, of course, all at easy effort, but just to get your body used to running longer, you know, long-ish distances, but, you know, split into two runs. So talk about, you know, what does the, what does the schedule of your event look like? You do want some of your training days to look very similar to that schedule.
0: And would it also like, could it also, um, I guess, work for someone's schedule, if they were to do like the six miler, like at night on Saturday and then do like the four mile first thing in
1: the morning, Sunday. Yeah. Or depending on if you, if you have your schedule and you know that like you're running at five o'clock at night and then you're running at two o'clock in the morning, like set your alarm one weekend and do that, you know, run at five o'clock at night and then go to sleep, set your alarm, get up at two and, and run some more. You don't have to do that every weekend, but you should probably do it at least once.
0: Yeah. And I mean, from my dietitian perspective, practice the fueling for that in that regards too, because that's probably going to be one of the trickier parts. Um, Remember, you're doing this for fun. This is for fun. Um, (laughs) So when it comes to like the, um, I guess the the type of training for the relay race, you kind of talked about how that could be more race specific to something like Ragnar. We're breaking up the mileage a little bit more throughout the week, but it's still maybe the same total volume. Um, For someone who's maybe just throwing in a relay race, but they're also training for like a marathon or a half marathon that is after the relay race, um, or even vice versa. Like maybe the marathon comes before and then they're like, "Eh, I can still kind of lean on my training for a Ragnar three weeks later. Um, like how would training look like for them? Cause obviously maybe the Ragnar is not the total goal. Like maybe the marathon's the goal, but they still want to show up for their team and not die. (laughs)
1: <laughs> yeah, that's a good question. So of course we always want to make sure that we are scheduling things appropriately in the context of your big goal race, right? So I, this is very common as we enter into the fall racing season, you know, somebody will say like, oh, my, my friends invited me to this Ragnar the week before my marathon. And I'll say, that's really nice, but you're going to have to tell your friends no, because you're not running a Ragnar the week before your marathon. Right. So never, we participate in any race or any kind of weird thing. I always like that to be before your taper and for most races. We're looking at a two, possibly a three week taper. So really think about that two to three weeks before your big, giant, expensive, I've spent all of my time and energy training for this one specific race event, two to three weeks before that is like a no-go zone, right? So that is sacrosanct. Your taper is a no race time. Um, But typically speaking, if you have the volume to support training for an, an endurance event, like a half or a full marathon, I'm not super concerned about your ability to complete the Ragnar you know, if it's something that's really important to you, it, it's not gonna, I don't know that it would necessarily specifically support your marathon training, but it probably won't detract from it. As long as you're recovering smartly and we are not, um, trashing ourselves so that we cannot continue with the training for our big a race. So this is obviously where the nutrition, the hydration, the fueling, that whole recovery piece, I think is so, so, so important. Um, you know, obviously there's value in doing things, even if it doesn't specifically support your big goal. We just want to make sure that it's not interfering with your ability to train for the big goal that you do have. And then obviously if this Ragnar is happening post-marathon. I'm, I mean, as a coach, I'm like, cool, do whatever you want. Like, if this makes you happy, I'm super psyched. Um, you know, there's a lot, it's a lot more kind of loosey goosey in that post-marathon period, where as long as it's, as long as you feel relatively recovered enough to complete that kind of event, I'm like, go for it and have fun. You know, don't hurt yourself, you crazy kid. But this is something, again, where that recovery aspect is so important. Um, And also, you know, if that, if there ends up being weird scheduling stuff, it can be helpful. Uh, I wouldn't necessarily, this is where it gets to like the whole, it depends. I would be really careful if I was training a runner for a marathon and they had a Ragnar schedule with a funky leg, I wouldn't necessarily want them to interrupt their training to get like a a 2am run in. Like for me, the benefit, the trade-off of that, be like, I don't marathon training is hard enough without throwing a wrench in with like weird midnight races. I would almost say like, just be really conservative. Just have fun on, on, you know, in your race event. I don't want you screwing up your sleep schedule to like practice running at 2am because it's not our primary purpose here you know, but of course, if it's something more like after your big a race or after your gold race, you know, if you feel like getting up at 2.00 AM just to practice afterwards, I'm less concerned with that because it's clearly not going to impact the a race training nearly as much. Cause the race is over already.
0: Yeah. So what I'm hearing is like the, the volume for marathon training is going to get you through a Ragnar race. It's more about the logistics of like fueling and recovery, and maybe some of the things you might want to practice to make it Ragnar race specific, or just be comfortable with like, you might be uncomfortable <laughs> during the, the relay race and your legs are probably going to get you through it, but be smart. Like during the actual race. Um, I think to go on a small tangent here, like personal experience and an experience I had recently with a client. Um, I think there's like a couple different ways to do that. Like I personally, I have done a Ragnar race, um, I think I did it five weeks before the Chicago marathon. I still PR would at the Chicago marathon. Um, the relay race was so fun. It was stupid fun. We did have a runner dropout. My husband and I were in the best shape on our team from a volume standpoint because we were marathon training. So I ended up with like 24 miles, you know, total that I had run, but I kind of used it as like a I'm going to run all the short legs super easy for my, they gave me the beast, like 12 miler leg, um, you know, because I was doing the long runs and I kind of treated that almost like a tempo effort. And I kind of treated it like a whole cohesive workout. Um, I think that worked well from a, training perspective, I think what didn't go so well is that you have no recovery, you know, really for a Ragnar relay. Um, and I didn't sleep that great. So I did end up taking like several days off after the Ragnar relay, probably like five days. And I kind of jumped back into regular scheduled training and it all worked out fine. But I think, you know, just having an open mind and I was not working with a coach, but I think if you are able to work with a coach, um, and have them as a sounding board for, this is all kind of non-traditional, you know, what do you think I should do? I think that's helpful. And then on the flip side, I had a client who um, was doing a trail Ragnar relay a couple of weeks out from her goal marathon. And I was like, look, it's going to be fun for you, but do not trip and fall. (laughs) Um, You know, like we, we might be power hiking. Is that okay with you? And she was like, it's totally fine. I'm just there for the experience. Like if I walk the whole time, I don't even care. So I think it's just a matter of being honest with what your actual goal is um, in the overarching theme and setting yourself up for success.
1: Yeah. It, it, the volume really volume kind of is the key to everything. You know, we talk about this, one of the, one of the tricky reasons it's so hard to come and, and describe any sorts of like how to apply X training to Y runners, because, you know, if a runner can throw down 50 miles a week, just as a matter of course, what they can do, for fun is way different from a runner. Who's at 10 to 15 miles a week. Like those are completely different approaches. You know, like you were in the middle of marathon training. You, yeah, it it was probably, you had no problem completing the distance. It was the lack of sleep that kind of took you down from a recovery standpoint, but you, you had no issue. You're like, yeah, I can run 24 miles in two days. That's not a big deal for me at all. Um, from a volume standpoint, right? So that's like, what is the trade-off? How, how intense, how much of an ask is the volume? Volume for you relative to your typical training load. You know, I don't want to be like a volume hoe, but you know, you can't, sometimes there are benefits to having a larger base volume because you do get so much more um, leeway to do things that in a lower volume perspective would take a lot of time to work up to comfortably. So although nobody has to, you know, if you don't want to walk around with a super high base volume, that's not the point here, but generally speaking, Higher volume runners are going to have a lot more uh, wiggle room, a lot more flexibility in participating in those kinds of events than runners who are maybe in the lower volume uh, end of the spectrum.
0: Yeah. Maybe like less risk too, just because you're, you're used to the volume. Um, yeah. That's helpful. So now kind of like to switch gears into our different category, which is like the Dopey Challenge, the Rocky Challenge, the Goofy Challenge, where we're doing, you know, 5K and then sleep, you know, for a night. And then the next day we're doing a 10K and then we sleep. And then the next day we're doing a half marathon. And then at the end of marathon, or we're doing several distances, you know, in a row, but we do get probably more like 10 to 12 hours of recovery. Um, and the distances are can be pretty significant, uh, like a marathon or a half marathon. How, (laughs) this is different, you know, than the Ragnar relay. So like how much, how much time would you recommend someone give themselves to train for something like the Dopey Challenge?
1: Yeah, that's a great question. Um, I personally approach something like the Dopey Challenge or the Goofy Challenge and a Half, you know, if you're as an ult, as basically it's an ultra endurance event. This is an ultra marathon that happens to be cut in half, you know, cut into a couple different days with some recovery in between. And so, you know, always when we're eyeing a multi-race weekend like this, we always want to first put our eye on the prize of what's the most demanding Event that I'll be accomplishing, right? So if that's the marathon, at minimum, we're training for a marathon, right? Plus some. Now, you don't necessarily need to go crazy and say, I, you know, you're not training to run. For example, with the um, Doby Challenge, it's you know forty-eight miles and change in total. I'm not training you to run forty-eight continuous miles, but I'm training you to have the endurance to complete at least twenty-six miles continuously, plus be able to do that on tired legs. So you cannot, and I've said this before, you really cannot shortcut building your endurance. And so for an event like this, I really recommend. I mean, I like to see a runner have probably five solid months to dedicate to training to this one specific event, depending on the volume that they're coming from. You may need six or more months to build up, to be able to run the distance. We think about training for a marathon alone. You know, I recommend four months minimum, and that's with a really solid base, right? So you know, training for a marathon is going to take you at least four months. And that's if you're already at like 20 to 30 miles per week. So if you're coming from a place where you're currently running five or 10 miles per week, you know, and you're trying to train for a marathon after having run a 5k, 10k and a half marathon, you know, we're looking at months of training, right? So you are spending all your money and all your time to do this event. You know, you need to spend your time training properly so you can actually enjoy the event and not get swept or not get hurt or not need to drop out. Totally. And could just get to the start line. Like you said. Um, yeah. So
0: for, for the dopey challenge to, to kind of put it in the same question, because I, I don't know if you've gotten this question, but I have, I have gotten this question. Um, can I do the dopey challenge? And then can I like run a really fast, like Houston marathon, you know, the following month? Like what, what are your, what are your thoughts on goal setting for something like this?
1: Yeah. Oh boy. You know, it's funny. Actually, I have, a an episode coming up on, on multiple marathoning, which is when you run basically back-to-back marathons, uh, you know, marathons within a couple weeks of each other. And so <laughs> my take on that is that you're, so what we know about the principles of how long it takes to recover from an endurance event, right? Generally speaking, it uh, uh, takes between, you know, three and six, possibly more weeks to 100% recover from a marathon, a marathon alone. Right. So we tack a marathon at the end of a four day weekend. When I work with my dopey challenge athletes, I typically say they're looking at between six and eight dedicated weeks of post race recovery. So if the race is the first weekend of January and then, uh, Houston's like what, two weeks later. Yeah. Um, If you are capable of handling the volume required to run a solid dopey challenge, and then somehow tape, not even taper, like taper recover, like, you know, run a couple short, easy runs and then run something like the Houston marathon, um, you would have to be genetically blessed to be able to recover that quickly in between those two races. And they do exist like Shalane Flanagan can, you know, run six, seven, you know, six marathons, um, within a couple months of each other, but she is a genetically gifted elite athlete with decades of triple uh, mileage weeks under her belt. She is a rare breed. Um, so my, my, I think my thing is that if you are the athlete who has found, they can do that. Like maybe you are way faster than you think you are. If you have the kind of durability to do that, most runners are going to be looking at, like I said, weeks of recovery after just a regular marathon, not with something like the dopey challenge. So although it technically would be possible for some runners to do that, we're talking about a very, very few athletes who could successfully do that. And it would. Highly recommend doing that under the guidance of a coach to begin with. Um, And that for the the average runner, the recreational runner like you and me, not something that's going to be, I would say, feasible or recommended. Pick one.
0: Totally. I appreciate that. And to kind of like backtrack a little bit too, um, for the training leading up to Dopey, obviously this is you know we're building a base and we're investing a lot of money in this race you know usually for people who do the dopey challenge it's not just a race like you're doing a whole vacation you're probably trying to walk around the parks like you don't want to be totally destroyed you know after each race so that you can go do some stuff um you know in disney and stuff but for, for the actual training like um i guess logistics like would you as a coach like would you structure it more like maybe marathon training or would it start to even maybe look more like 50 K like ultra marathon training where we're doing back-to-back long runs. Like how do you simulate people running on tired legs?
1: Yeah. And we definitely, it's something that we work up to, right. You know, if somebody's coming from 10 or 15 miles a week, you know, we don't start them running four days back-to-back leading, you know, ending in their longest long run of the week. Right. So we want to work up to this, but yes, when I, when we talk about uh, the training progression and structuring training, if you're something like dopey or, or goofy, when you have three, four races back-to-back like that. We always, I personally try to end up with training that mimics the schedule, not the duration, but the schedule of the events. Right. So, um, you know, for when possible, I like that to look like running Thursday, Friday, Saturday, Sunday, four days in a row, obviously, you know, our Thursday run is shorter, shorter. And then the runs get longer and longer ending with our longest long run on Sunday. And yes, it can be helpful to do not necessarily back to back long runs, but back to back longer runs, you know, especially if we can get an hour, uh, uh, an athlete running, something like two hours on Saturday and maybe three hours on Sunday that I think if, if we can like, Sustain that for a couple weeks in a training cycle and work up to. We're not necessarily concerned with volume so much, but time on feet, repetitive, fatiguing time on feet, easy effort, almost entirely easy effort. We're in that race specific volume building style of training. Um, so running. Four days a week at the end of our weeks in increasing durations, ending with our longest long run, just like it's going to be on race day. So you learn not only what it feels like to not, you know, blow yourself up on your Thursday run, but what it feels like to head into that Sunday long run already having run three days in a row on legs that are yeah, pretty tired.
0: Yeah. And like. It obviously depends on the athlete, but for something like dopey, like what, I guess, does speed work fit into a training cycle for this? Like, how do you kind of approach, um, you know, speed work Hills, some of those more quality sessions. Um, and we're going to just assume like the person maybe has a good base, you know, and they're, they're planning to complete the dopey challenge. Maybe they've done a marathon before. Like, how would you approach something like that?
1: Yeah, this is a good question. And this is going to be so highly dependent on the athlete. And, you know, the, the greater your volume base is like the more leeway you have to do harder things in training. Um, when we talk about building your endurance to be able to complete any long distance event, we have to slow down to go the distance before we can then start adding speed. Right. So, you know, my primary concern with most athletes is getting their endurance base built up so they can complete the distance. Now, like you said, if a runner's coming in and they have a solid volume base, you know, they're not looking to PR, but looking to perform well, Um, they can reasonably race a marathon, even on tired legs. You know, maybe they're coming in, they're starting at 40 miles per week. We have a lot more leeway there than somebody, like I said, is coming from that 10 to 15 mile per week background. So although, speed work, um, and quality sessions are still a relatively small part of marathon training overall relative to something like five or 10 K training, you know, with an athlete like that, we would probably want to still include some quality days. You know, I always like to keep some leg speed in, you know, training no matter what. So we're always going to be doing Hills and strides, um, I like to do, you know, some mid-run surges in the middle of an easy run, just to give it some flavor. You know, get used to kind of surging and recovering, surging and recovering, and then finishing an easy effort, which can help with, you know, race day um, strategy and, and surging and recovering in the race. And then again, depending on the athlete and their goals and their background, we might still include things like, you know, progression long runs and lactate threshold and that kind of stuff. But that is so like a couple steps down the road because it doesn't matter how much speed work we do if they cannot even go the distance to begin with.
0: Yeah. So distance with something like this is definitely King. And like you said, that's kind of the whole point of the challenge. Um, and then speed would maybe come second if it's appropriate. And then conversely, like, um, I know for the dopey challenge in particular, a lot of people who run that race are doing like run walk method. Um, and they're incorporating, you know, walk breaks into their training. You did, like such a good podcast on run walk recently. Everyone should go listen to that. Even if you're like, I don't think I need to run walk. You should still go listen to it. I was listening to it and I was like, you know, I'm going to take some walk breaks, uh, during this run. Um, but yeah, I mean, I think, I think that can be a really good tool for people too. So who would be a good candidate for run, walk, and you can kind of give maybe the elevator (laughs) speech version of that podcast episode.
1: Yeah, I absolutely adore run, walk. It is one of the best tools for building your endurance. Even if you think you're like, no, but I'm a runner. I don't walk. I run. Oh, I guarantee you're going to benefit from using run, walk, especially if you are trying to build up to this kind of like ultra distance event. So run walk for me is such a useful tool to help athletes stay in their easy effort zone when continuous running makes them, you know, um, puts them in a higher effort zone than they should be. So we know the importance of building our aerobic endurance. We do that in our easy effort zone. And for some runners, it is challenging or sometimes impossible to run continuously and not end up in zone four, zone five, right? If they're running, their heart rate is super high, their effort's super high. And so run walk is such a useful tool to bring their effort down overall and extend the amount of time they can spend on their feet because that's literally how we build endurance. And so, especially when we are going to these great double digit distances in our long runs, but really for any runner, we want to slow down so that we can go the distance, right? So that's when run walk is such a useful tool. I prefer and i counsel my runners that i work with that run walk we typically do to effort and or heart rate not to time because just like we know that your easy effort pace can change from day to day depending on a variety of conditions like the weather and your fatigue level and your menstrual cycle and your fueling status and your hydration status choosing or or doggedly sticking to a very specific time based interval four-year run walk may not be appropriate for you in general or appropriate on that specific day. So many runners, when they are utilizing run walk, do this thing where I call, they do the, the sprint mosey, like they start and they, when they, when they start their run, they're like off, like a bad, bad, out of hell, like go, 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 go. And then they, you know, get the beep and they slow down to like this kind of mosey amble. And what you're doing there is effectively just doing some sort of weird interval workout. That's not what we want to have happen. We want to bring your run pace way down slow. We want to bump your walk pace up a little bit to a brisk walk. And we want to basically hover in that easy effort zone with a nice slow walk or a nice, slow run and a nice brisk walk. With the goal being that eventually you will be able to run longer, possibly even 100% continuously, but if not just longer and for more time, more comfortably on your feet in that easy effort zone. So that's, I absolutely adore run walk for a variety of situations, but especially when we are trying to build our endurance for something like the Dopey Challenge or similar races.
0: Yeah. It's, it can be such a good tool. And some of my clients use it too. And they've like, they've gotten so much faster they're like, I'm walking, but I'm faster. Like it's wild. It, it really does work. And, um, don't, you know, count yourself out for being a good candidate for it. Cause you, you, it might be something you can use even occasionally just to get your recovery efforts. More
1: yeah. On I mean, it. I did, but my goodness, I, you know, living and we both live in new England and this summer has just been absolutely brutal, but yeah, I, <laughs> there are, there are a lot of runs this summer. I'm like, Oh no, I, I got to walk, you know, and that's okay. It's a, your body doesn't understand pace. And although you may think that it's important that you run continuously, it's more important that you spend the right amount of time in a specific effort zone. And when you're working harder than you should be, you're not fulfilling the purpose of the workout or the run if you are working too hard. So, although it may feel counterintuitive to slow down to a walk instead of run, you're actually building up your endurance in the right way. When we talk about that 30,000 zoomed out view, That's the right move is actually to walk instead of continue to run sometimes.
0: Totally. And like the heat, I don't know about there, but the humidity like kind of disappeared a little bit this week. And I'm like, I'm like, I'm so fast this week. I'm like, Oh my God, everything feels better. I know we'll get second summer here in like a week or two and then it'll all, you know, go back to the way it was, but it it can make a big difference even seasonally.
1: (laughs) Absolutely. Yeah. And so you might be somebody who you only do run walk in the summer because where you live is brutally terrible and then you're not doing it in the winter and that's completely fine. Right. It's all about effort, not pace. Totally.
0: Totally. And even like for the trail, like stuff, if you're doing like a trail relay or a trail race, like people are going to be walking in trail races, you're going to be walking up hills, you know, up mountains. And if it's making more sense for you to walk, like your heart rate's going to be better. Maybe you're even like just, um, you know, from a form perspective, like doing things better. When you're walking or power hiking, then you should do that.
1: <laughs> yeah. I, I think that's kind of the, one of the, if you, if you aren't familiar with trail running or trail racing, um, there's a lot of walking involved unless you are super elite and even they power hike, you know, on uh, um, occasionally, but yeah, there's, um, there's a good amount of walking, especially on the uphills, you know, for a lot of people, especially depending on the grade of the Hill and, and the footing and the complexity of the trail, Um, it might be more efficient for you to walk and then to run the flats and to take advantage of gravity on the downhills. Uh, but that's also why you're always going to be slower on a trail than you are on the pavement or on the track. Like you just guaranteed to be slower because you're running in the woods. What do you expect? Totally. And to kind of just
0: allude to, um, our previous episode we did together on what to do if training doesn't go as planned, just to bring some attention to this, cause it happens unfortunately, but during a multi-stage race, whether it's a relay or it's the dopey challenge, if you are kind of like in the middle of your race, you're between le- different legs or races, and you start to notice maybe I'm getting a little injured or something kind of hurts or, you know, something doesn't feel right. Like, kind of what would you tell a runner in that in that category, knowing that they still probably have more runs to complete even after a recovery period?
1: Yeah. So this would be, you know, slow it down, regroup. If you need to take a a break or, you know, or a walk break, get some water, maybe eat something, um, and kind of, you know, evaluate and assess. Obviously neither of us are physical therapists, and we can kind of give the general guidance, but you know, is this kind of like a minor twinge or ache and pain? You know what that happens. I want to say you shouldn't necessarily run through injury, but Hey, we're runners. You put enough volume on your legs. Not everything feels great all the time. And that's just kind of normal. Um, in evaluate, you know, how much, how much further do you have to go in that specific leg? How much further do you have to go in your, in your multi-day event, in your multi-stage event? And how bad is it? You know, um, I, if sometimes when we just kind of slow things down and keep going, it kind of goes away. That's actually the best case scenario, right? You're like, I mean, I, and I'm sure you have Holly too, like been in the middle of a long run and your knee will start hurting randomly. And you're like, what the, what is this? Like, where did this come from? And you're like, is this, should I keep Should I stop? Like, is this a big deal? I'll have to make a note of this and final surge afterwards. And like 20 minutes later, it's gone. Right. So sometimes things just pop up. And that's normal. Obviously, if whatever you're experiencing, you know, especially from an injury standpoint, keeps getting progressively worse. If it's changing the way that you're running, if you find that you're favoring one leg or the over the other, or you're limping, or it's like sharp or stabbing, like, I know you don't want to let your team down. I know you want to let yourself down, but you got to take care of your health first and foremost. So, you know, I want to say like run through minor injuries, but minor aches and pains just like see if it goes away of course if it keeps getting worse you might want to call it early or you know call it after your uh, leg is done there's no sense in hurting yourself in the long term because of some like weird short term goal
0: yeah and i think too like i mean really with either race situation we've talked about with with Ragnar I realized you're probably stopping your run to go sit in a van Um, or you're stopping your run to go like chill in a tent. And then if it's dopey, maybe you're going and walking around Disney world all day. So I also think it's important to say, be mindful of what you're doing after your runs over so that you're keeping your body gently moving and you're not overtaxing it more in your, what's supposed to be recovery. Cause I know that in both of those situations, like they're not really set up for optimal recovery. It's meant to be a bit more of an experience.
1: Yeah, especially going in, like sitting in a van, and like, yeah, if you can keep yourself, you know, every hour, get up and stretch your legs and get some blood moving, kind of help that recovery. Foam rolling can also help to bring blood to air. You know, if you don't have a lot, if you cannot get up and walk around, cause you're literally in a van, like foam rolling can be helpful or something like a Theragun just to get the blood into your muscles. So it can sweep away some of those, um, you know, metabolite byproducts and the kind of the cell trash that accumulates after you run. And that can be helpful. I will also say, I really, like I get I get the whole, like being at Disney and wanting to spend time in Disney. Um, but I, please don't like spend 12 hours in the park the day, you know, every single day that you're in the in the challenge. Um, you know, especially we talk about pacing yourself in the races, you know, the 5K is untimed, walk that, right? Or maybe easy jog it, you know. Um, but if you are getting up at, and I've done Disney races, I've been there people. If you're getting up at 2.30 in the morning, to go for a 5 a.m. gun time and then you're, you know, doing a couple hours on your feet and then you are going to spend 10 hours walking around a theme park in the Florida sun. Oh boy, you are, you are setting yourself up to be in a world of hurt by Saturday morning. So I know it seems weird, but my, my best advice would be to treat the days of the races that you are currently racing those aren't park days. Those are hanging out days, or maybe just like, you know, walking around here and there, um, save your park days for after, after you've completed, uh, Sunday's race, you'll be a lot happier. I promise you.
0: Very sound advice. Very sound advice. Resist the urge and, you know, again, prioritize your goals because it's just, it's not going to be good if you're on your feet for 12 hours and then have to run a marathon in
1: the Florida heat the next day with a 2am wake up time.
0: I mean, Um, I'm exhausted
1: spending a day at at Disney, like not having run a marathon or half marathon earlier in the day, you know, like it's exhausting spending that much time and maybe you're struggling with your hydration and maybe you're struggling with your fueling. And yes, just, yeah. I mean, um, think about how you feel after a normal day in the hot, hot sun in a theme park, and then remember that you have to run double digits the next day and prioritize your time accordingly.
0: Yeah, totally. And like wear the right shoes, bring snacks because fueling in the Disney parks is terrible. Um, so yeah, that's really good advice. Um, well, do you have time for some rapid fire questions? Yes. Excellent. I already asked you the end of the podcast question. The first time you came on, you said you would finish a race to like pretty epic, like movie orchestral music, which I really appreciated. And I have since looked up those playlists and they are awesome. So let's get into some rapid fire questions. So what's your favorite holiday?
1: Christmas. Awesome. What's your favorite meal of the day? My favorite meal of the day. Oh, this is a. like what kind of foods do I'm too bad at rapid fire? Like what, what's my favorite like food type or what I look forward to eating the most? Yes. <laughs> um, my favorite meal of the day is probably lunch lunch person. Yeah. Late lunch. I'm happy if I can do a late lunch. Yeah.
0: Okay. Do you like
1: like lunch type foods? I do. Yeah. It's funny. I mean, I like breakfast foods too. I just like food. I mean, that's like asking me to choose if I had children, choose a favorite child. Like I just like all my meals and all of my food.
0: (laughs) Oh Wow. What a great answer. Well, I mean, I approve of that answer too. Um, all right. And then iced coffee or hot coffee or no coffee. Oh, all the coffee, all of the coffee.
1: Uh, I like hot coffee. Yeah, unless it's good iced coffee because if you just pour hot coffee over ice, it's absolute crap. I went through a phase when I was in college about would drink iced um, espresso. Like I went through that like over caffeinated, you know, early twenties <laughs> phase where I was like quad espresso over ice and the baristas were like, oh, get a load of this girl. Um, but yeah, no, I'm a, I'm a big fan of my coffee. <laughs> But now that I'm in my thirties, I can't drink caffeine past noon or else I'm up too late. <laughs> oh, same. And I
0: also have to drink it slow. Like I drink it slowly. So I'll be looking at the cup and I'm just like, it's still half full, but it's almost noon. Oh no. What do I do? <laughs> uh, what's
1: your favorite season? My favorite season is, oh God, I want to say fall. I have to go with my gut here. Fall. Yeah. Fall. Yeah. New England fall is pretty great. New England fall is amazing. Especially as a runner. Cause like spring is gorgeous but it gets weirdly hot and humid sometimes. And as a runner, I just can't enjoy it as much as I enjoy fall when it gets cooled and crisp. And you're like, wow, I actually did get super fit over the summer. This is awesome. Yeah. Like I'm fast again. (laughs) (laughs) Exactly. Yeah. I'm not slow anymore. (laughs) Yeah. Like I wasn't having an existential
0: crisis for two months. Um, what's your favorite distance to race?
1: Oh man. Um, I would say that my favorite distance to race is the 5k, even though I know, even though I, I tend to, you know, like, cause it's over so fast. Mm-hmm. Um, and I'm still figuring out the 5k and I was talking to, uh, to Claire Barthol at planted runner about this and how like, it's harder to, it can be harder to run a really good 5k compared to a really good marathon. Now, of course, the marathon it's like, you're almost at the whim of the gods, right? There's so much that can go wrong. And whether you not, you have a good race day is kind of outside of your control at the end of the day. And so, you know, but the 5k that's all on you. Um, so yeah, I'm gonna go with 5k. I think,
0: I think that's why so many runners either love or hate the 5k. Cause they're like, Oh, it's all on me. Like I have no excuses and it should be over really quickly, but yeah. But if it stinks, you can try again in like a week. So that helps.
1: Yeah. And I actually, I, I did a 5k earlier this summer and I hadn't raced a 5k in forever. And I've been marathon training, which is like not, nothing shorter than three miles, any, any given day of the week. And of course, 5k pace is a nice rapid pace. And I remember getting to like mile one, you know, the first mile marker, which of course I wanted to bail off the first quarter mile. Cause like, this pace is so hard, but you know, yeah. I got to the third, the, you know, mile two, whatever the third mile marker. And I was like, Oh my God, I'm done. Like, is that it? It was Great. I had a very similar experience
0: with the beach to beacon 10 K recently. I was like, I don't, I'm afraid to redline because I'm a, I'm a marathoner and redlining is scary. And you definitely don't want to do that during the marathon. So I'm like trained to not quite pass that line, but then I got to mile five and I was like, Oh wait, I have like a whole nother gear that I never used. It's <laughs> so like maybe I I need to race
1: these more often because I don't know what I'm doing. <laughs> Beach to beacon is stuff. Actually, I grew up in Cape Elizabeth. So yeah. I'm uh, I'm very familiar with the course and the road. And that is not an easy race, especially with when they do it. August in Maine. Yeah. Oh my God, it's brutal.
0: It was 85 and like a hundred percent humidity. And like the sun was blaring down. I was like dumping cups of water on my head immediately. I carried a handheld. I was the 10 K or carrying, Of course I was carrying a handheld and I drained it. Like it was, it was really, I do really well on rolling courses. And I feel like that one, everything that does go up does go down. Um, so that that's definitely helpful, but yeah, definitely, uh, I think I need to do more five and 10Ks because I'm like, I don't know how to do this.
1: <laughs> Next summer, you should come up to Freeport, the LL Bean 10K. Oh, it yeah. is one of the hardest courses I think I've ever run. Like a normal, oh, wow. not like intentionally, like, oh, this course is super hard because that's our like hook. It's like a normal 10K. The first mile is downhill. And then it's just like, and I, 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 I'm very familiar with um, the roads up there, and it's just like the rest of the course is basically uphill. <laughs> and it's in July in Maine, yeah, so similar conditions. It's awful. We can go suffer together. It's going to be great.
0: That sounds great. And like the 10K,
1: in my opinion, is like the worst
0: distance ever. So that'll be great. Um, <laughs> that was the other thing. I knew that Beach to Beacon was going to be hilly, so I was like, "Don't like burn out. There's hills. Don't burn out. There's hills." Now that I've run it, I'm like, "Oh." they're hills, but they're nothing spectacular. Like I was, I would have
1: been fine, but yeah, anyway, I like that answer. It's coastal rollers. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's not mountains. It's, it's yeah. (laughs)
0: Appalachian style
1: hills.
0: (laughs) Yeah. They're little, little humps. Um, and then where can everyone find you?
1: Yes. I spend a lot of time too much, probably on Instagram <laughs> running explained. I have a podcast, the running explained podcast. It's my big dream this year to start writing uh, blog posts on the website. But I also, like I said, uh, there are a lot of ways you can learn from running explained. You can work with us, um, one-on-one coaching group, coaching training plans that are pre-written for a variety of distances and a variety of abilities, including my favorite base building plans. If you are between races and don't know what to do. It's time for base building my absolute favorite season of the year. Um, yeah. And so we were just, you know, hanging out, spinning, good running knowledge and debunking myths. Like, you know, you don't need to run too hard all the time. You don't need to train fasted and there are ways to get faster and become a better runner that also can feel good at the same time.
0: I love that. And you have a Dopey Challenge group going right now. So do you do.
1: have spots left in that? I do. Yeah. So we officially launched at the beginning of August. This group is really special because it's I'm it's custom training plans. So I um have a, a a really big problem with the, you know, the plan that is presented to people sign up for the Dopey Challenge, the free one that basically has them running like 20 miles on the weekend and then like two 30-minute runs during the week. I hope that based on what, how I've described the principles of how you train for an event like the Adobe challenge, you know, that that kind of training plan doesn't set you up for success. It might train you to finish, but it probably is going to get you injured along the way. And I guarantee you, I can train you better. So yes, our Adobe challenge group did launch at the beginning of August. Although you may have missed a couple of weeks, we do have still have a couple spots available. So it is custom plans, weekly training calls, presentations, fueling, um, hydration, scheduling paces, and, and, um, how to do like how to train how to train, how you should be training. I am there to answer all your questions every single week except for Thanksgiving because it's a holiday, but to prepare you to run the best dopey challenge of your life, whether it's your very first one or your 50th one, um, yes, this is this is the group for you. So you can head on over. Um, you can DM me actually. It's probably the best way to get into the group since registration is technically closed. But like I said, we do have, still have spots available. So if you wanna learn more, you can always reach out to me on Instagram, Running Explained. And what
0: I love about your group too, like you said, is you do train people. It's a custom training plan. So, I mean, that's like worth its weight in gold, but you're also just also keeping in mind all the recovery things, the nutrition things, the fueling, you know, the things that are just as important as the training, especially for something like dopey, just to get you to the start line, let alone the finish. So I think that's really important.
1: Yeah. Training for these endurance events. Like I said, training for a marathon, the training is a marathon, right? So there are so many things that can go along along the way, um, that even getting to the start line in one piece and feeling confident, that is, that is like the first goal. And then we get you through every single race, um, each day, each of the four days. So yeah, there's something, you know, the logistics of a race like this are really special. And unique. And, you know, like we said, you're spending a lot of money and your family's time and your time to participate in an event like this. And, like, you should, you deserve to feel good, not only during your training, but when you're actually doing the race itself and know that you're doing it correctly.
0: Amazing. I love it. Yeah. Go check that out if this is something that piques your interest. Elizabeth, thank you so much for coming on the show. And I hope to talk to you again soon, probably about
1: another topic because you're so good at explaining running. Oh, thank you so much. Thank you for having me. And yes, well, I know we chat offline a whole bunch, um, but it's always good to talk to you on a podcast, including yours or mine.
0: <laughs> Elizabeth, thank you so much for coming on the show today. We really appreciate your sharing your knowledge on this topic. Thanks to The Feed for sponsoring this episode of the Fit Cooking Nutrition Podcast. And if you guys have been enjoying these episodes, I would really appreciate it if you... <laughs> Did me a favor today and left me a five-star rating and review of the show. You're always welcome to leave any constructive feedback too. That's how I can keep making the show better and getting guests that you want to hear from on topics that you care about. So you can go on Spotify or Apple Podcasts or wherever you're listening and leave a rating and review. It honestly helps the show out so much and gets this free information out to more people. Until next time, guys, happy running. We'll